Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. You want to think that it works like this. Everybody working in any newsroom, anywhere, we're all on the same team. Team news. Everybody, from from an intern to the editor-in-chief, we're all trying to get stories, interviews, information, transparency, accountability from the other teams. Team government, team business, team justice system, so on. And, you know, it's adversarial by nature. Whatever it is that they don't want us to see, that's the stuff we're trying to get. Because they're all playing for their teams, too. And each team has its own interests and its own rules. And, and you know, that's the idea. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. But when you get to the very highest levels, I'm not so sure it actually works that way. The guys at the very top of Team News, and yes, we, we are mostly talking about guys, they look at the guys at the very top of Team Government and Team Industry, and over time, they start to get the idea, you know what, I'm like you. You and me, we go to the same galas and conferences, 
I've been to your cottage. We work with the same people. Actually, the same people work for us. Your director of communications used to be my senior editor. I have more in common with you than I have with them. I'm a boss like you. I'm not on Team News. I'm on Team Power. Team Elite. And, you know, when my turn is done running this sinking news organization, I'm thinking, Senator? You know? Governor General? Okay, an Order of Canada. Chancellor of some university. You know, I, I could run a think tank. Or, or what, what's the one that uh, RBC gave John Stackhouse when he was finished as editor-in-chief of The Globe? Senior Vice President Responsible for Interpreting Trends. That's how it really works. We call it the ruling class. And the ruling class play on their own team. Or at least that's how I've always kind of guessed that it works, because you don't ever really get to find out for sure. Who really knows how these people deal with each other in private? All you can usually do is look at the results. Who got some big award or, or some cushy ceremonial job at some bank or law firm? All you can do is look at that and then kind of guess how it all happened. But every now and then, some information drips out. Sometimes you get a quick glimpse behind the curtain. That just happened to me. I got my hands on emails sent from the editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail, David Walmsley, to a senior official in the prime minister's office. These emails were sent in 2017 and 2018, all of it in the lead-up to the SNC-Lavalin scandal, which of course was a fantastic Globe and Mail expose on the inner workings of the Trudeau government. During that scandal, I think it's fair to say that the Globe newsroom and the PMO were on different teams. They were total adversaries in the classic, glorious sense. The Globe exposed the PMO's secrets. The PMO lied and denied those revelations. The Globe pressed on and proved them to be true. It was a high point in recent Canadian journalism. But before all of that, the Globe and the PMO seemed to be getting along great, at least according to these emails that I obtained. In a July 2017 email, David Walmsley, who, remember, he runs the Globe and Mail's newsroom, he's their most senior journalist, in that email, he tries to arrange a business meeting between the Prime Minister's office and David Walmsley's boss, the CEO and publisher of the Globe and Mail, Philip Crawley. He writes, I'm keen to set up a meeting between yourself and my boss. Philip would like to discuss the current media landscape with you and discuss some things the Globe and Mail is doing. I found out what those things are. I also obtained documents that reveal what Walmsley was talking about. The things that the Globe and Mail were doing were all in this big artificial intelligence project, augmented journalism software. And the reason why the Globe wanted to talk to the PMO about this project is because they wanted money. They wanted $12.13 million in funding from the government from what is called the Strategic Innovation Fund, also called SIF. This is a Trudeau government program. They've given out over a billion dollars. I also got a document showing that the Globe wanted the government to change federal legislation. They wanted the Income Tax Act to be amended in a way that would allow the Thompson family, the richest family in Canada who owned the Globe, they would be able to get millions of dollars back from the government every year in the form of a tax receipt. But they need this law to change for that to happen. And both of those things would be in addition to the media bailout, by the way. So that is what David Walmsley seems to be doing here. And this is happening just months before he's going to run all of these stories about SNC-Lavalin lobbying the PMO improperly and how that led to this conflict with Jody Wilson-Raybould and so on. But before that, here he is saying, I'm eager for you to meet my boss. Let's set up a meeting. What do you say? All of this happened off the books, by the way. The Globe and Mail was not registered to lobby at this point. 
they certainly could have registered with the federal lobbyist registry. And the Globe's actions, asking government for money and legislative changes, I think it just matches any reasonable, common understanding of what the word lobbying means. But I will say that there is no evidence that they technically needed to register. The requirements for registration are complicated, and there are big loopholes which the Globe might easily have fit into. There's another email in which Walmsley is asking the PMO if it can provide Justin Trudeau to appear on stage to be interviewed by him, Walmsley, at a ticketed Globe-sponsored event. The Globe also happens to be in the live events business these days, by the way. They have their own dedicated event space for it. And we're told that it didn't just happen this once. Walmsley asked the government to provide a number of ministers for various events. There's another email sent where instead of asking the prime minister's office for a favor, David Walmsley is offering them one. He's sending this email from Davos, the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. So first he brags a little bit about his access to a famous Facebook executive. I have Sandberg at 5 a.m., he jokes, and I'm giving her one more chance to prove that she is a media literate. Then David Walmsley makes his offer to connect the prime minister's office with a Procter & Gamble executive. If you don't know Carolyn, he writes to this government official, I can e-intro you. She's a highly capable industry leader. She manages $29 billion in revenue. All of this looked very off to me. I wanted David Walmsley's response. Does he have some explanation for all of this? Am I getting the context wrong? I wanted to know, but the thing is, Globe and Mail Management has not answered Canada Land's questions, I mean, not even a no comment, in years. Luckily, there is one journalism gala I try to go to, the Canadian Journalists for Free Expression. They had their dinner last month. I snagged an invite, and there he was, David Walmsley, at one of the tables at the very front. So this was my chance, and I took it. I introduced myself. Uh, We made some awkward chit-chat, and then I got to it, and I asked, listen, I have to ask you, have you ever lobbied the PMO? He looked totally taken aback and uh, recovered after a second and said, no, never. Then I asked him more specifically, you've never lobbied the PMO for SIF money or for changes to legislation? He repeated, same answer, no, never. You know, denials don't get much stronger than that. So I sent questions to Gerald Butts, the former principal secretary to Justin Trudeau, person who resigned from his job in the wake of those SNC-Lavalin revelations, and I asked him what he thought of David Walmsley's denial. And Gerald Butts went on the record with Canada Land. Asked about Walmsley's denial, Butts said, I don't know why he would say that. Mr. Walmsley discussed many topics with me, including their CIF application, policy issues related to support for journalism, and about having government representatives attend their events. I did what I always did with requests of that kind and directed them to the appropriate officials. I then asked Butts, did Walmsley bring up the Globe's business interests with you once or on multiple occasions? He confirmed multiple times. Then I asked him, did David Walmsley ever use his editorial access to the prime minister's office? Did he ever set up an editorial meeting at the PMO and then use that meeting to bring up the Globe's business interests? Again. Gerald Butts said, yes, he confirmed that. I got some other corroboration on this stuff. There was a former senior government official who confirmed to me that, yes, he was contacted by Gerald Butts in early 2018. Butts got in touch to say, hey, heads up, I just met with David Walmsley at the Globe and Mail. They're going to be coming to you with a SIF fund application. And come, it did. 
Okay, so it only seemed fair to go back to Walmsley. I told him, listen, thank you for giving me the answer at that gala. Uh, I appreciate you giving me comment. Uh, I took it as a total firm denial. But I've seen your emails, and I'm told that you did these things. And I checked the Globe and Mail's own rules of conduct for its employees. They say that you're not supposed to exploit your connection to the Globe when you're trying to get things from the government. And you're not even supposed to be trying to get things from the government if you cover that part of the government. So do you want to uh, expand on your earlier statement? Do you want to amend it in any way? And I got a response. Not from David Walmsley, but from the office of the Globe and Mail's publisher and CEO, Philip Crawley. It reads, The Globe and Mail is proud to take a leadership role in advocating for the importance of media in Canada. We are open about our ideas regarding the current and future challenges of the industry and have always worked within the appropriate channels to express our views. The integrity of our editorial coverage speaks for itself. So that's it. That's the story that I've been putting together in drips and drabs over the past few months. And just last week, the day came, we hit publish about two hours before Andrew Scheer resigned amid his own scandal, which totally took over the news cycle. So tough shit for me, I guess. But I got to tell you, this still feels like kind of a big deal to me. But of course, every reporter thinks that their story is a really big deal. And sometimes you need fresh eyes on it to give you some perspective. Well, Paul Adams is an associate professor of journalism at Carleton University in Ottawa. Before that, he covered Ottawa for the Globe and Mail as a senior political correspondent. He also covered federal politics in Ottawa for CBC's The National and for CBC Radio. He knows this stuff, but he doesn't know me beyond sending me a few corrections to my work over Twitter and email over the years. He joins me in a minute from Ottawa. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Arzina Hamir, Brandon Evans, Kyle Manchi, Erica Milligan, Colin Gailis, James Monroe, Chris Kempinski, and Alex Garnett. Hi, my name is Alex Garnett, and I support Canada Land because it's one of very few news outlets in 2019 that is neither partisan nor credulous. It's nice to have someone who actually cares about seeming objective, but doesn't tolerate a lot of BS or bad faith. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge 
research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. What do you think, Paul? Well, I think it's entirely inappropriate for David Wamsley to be inserting himself into conversations with the PMO over issues of the business interests and the relationship between the Globe and Mail as a business entity and the government of Canada. The role of the editor in a large organization like this is to manage the editorial content of the newspaper. Of course, that can't be separated completely from the business interests of the newspaper because obviously the question of circulation, the question of running the kinds of sections or the kinds of stories that will entice people to buy the paper or click on the website, you know, all of those things are in a sense related to the business. But the difference between the editor and the publisher, Philip Crawley, is that the publisher is supposed to look after the business interests of the organization and it's supposed to insulate the editorial side from things that would compromise it in terms of its editorial integrity. I think the Globe has been quite relentless over the past year about SNC-Lavalin, which was clearly the most difficult story for the Liberal government. And so you have to, you know, applaud the Globe and Mail Bureau. They're obviously not (laughs) doing the reporting on the basis of trying to suck up to the Liberal government for Globe and Mail business interests. But that having been said, you know, David Walmsley, he actually hosted a debate in the 2015 election, Mm -hmm. right? He has clearly defined himself as a journalist. What would we think if we found out that a journalist following the prime minister and asking him questions was at the same time in negotiations with the government for something that would benefit them personally or their business interests and so on. We would say that that was a conflict of interest. There's a clear conflict of interest here. One of the strangest things is the the quote you have at the start of your article where Wamsley says, I'm keen to set up a meeting between yourself and my boss. And I had to reread that two or three times to try, like because it was, it was so startling to me, right? First of all, Philip Crawley is big enough and ugly enough to set up his own meetings, right? Yeah. You know, the, the publisher of the Globe and Mail should be in a position, and they had a lobbying firm. It is possible for them to negotiate the shoals of government programs and government lobbying without getting the editor involved. Like, what on earth is he doing, inserting himself into that process? And then the assuming your reporting is correct there, that the idea that you would have an editorial meeting where the editor of the Globe and Mail would simply bring up business issues, that's just shocking. This morning I I was looking at um, the New York Times Code of Ethics because they have, you know, in some ways the Times sets a standard for the industry, you know, across the continent and across the world in terms of the way it 
conducts itself in ethical ways. And there's a passage in there that says a basic common sense thing is how would this behavior reflect on the reputation of the New York Times? Would it undermine the integrity or the perception of the integrity of the New York Times? You know, you don't have to think very hard. Would it undermine people's perception of the Globe and Mail's neutrality, balance, objectivity, whatever phrase you want to use, its coverage of the government, if they knew that the editor who's actually in the meetings deciding on editorials, in the meetings deciding on what reporters will cover what subjects, and in the meetings that decide which who gets hired and who gets which assignments. It's just, it's really a shocking derogation of the traditional view of the newspaper industry and the and the media industry of itself. You bring up a lot of issues that I, I, I want to uh, I want to bear down on. I think before I do, I should say that um, we did get further comment from the Globe and Mail because you know after we had that denial from Walmsley and then Gerald Butt saying I don't know why he's denying this. He brought up these issues with me many times. We felt like we had to give David Walmsley a further chance to like. Can you clarify this in light of the, these these emails that we've obtained, which seem to show you setting up business meetings in light of Gerald Butts, in light of this uh, other account that we've received that says that you were involved in this stuff. Do you want to give us another interpretation or, you know, kind of every chance? And we got a response. It's interesting because our whole story is about how the editorial side was doing something that the business side should have been doing. And we didn't get a response from the editorial side, which is who we asked, the leader of the editorial side. Instead, the answer to our questions about editorial impropriety came from the business side. Philip Crawley's office sent us this statement, which said, the Globe and Mail is proud to take a leadership role in advocating for the importance of media in Canada. We are open about our ideas regarding the current and future challenges of the industry and have always worked within the appropriate channels to express our views. The integrity of our editorial coverage speaks for itself. So there's a few things that they're signaling there, I believe, in my interpretation of this. And uh, there, there's a lot. Yeah. Going on so what? Yeah. Like when, when they say the the integrity of our editorial coverage speaks for itself, it kind of reflects what you were saying, Paul. Which is like, look, we became the biggest adversaries of the prime minister's office you could imagine with SNC Lavalin. The idea that we were sucking up to government is totally disproven in our adversarial journalism, and that was I was applauding that adversarial journalism all the way. The thing about conflict of interest is. It's not about proving that you did something wrong. It's about being able to show that you didn't, you know, and and mm-hmm. there's an alternate narrative to all of this. Now that we have this timeline where they were looking for money and legislative changes before they turned really nasty towards the, you know, it sort of puts this kind of suspicion on that SNC. Like, now, I don't think for a second that, that a reporter like Bob Fife would be given marching orders like, we didn't get our $12 million, Bob, go get them. The right. thing is that we have these rules so that you know that those things don't touch each other, you know? So you, you could kind of play the snc Lavalin thing. You could look at that, you know, through both lenses as a defense of the globe or an indictment if you wanted to. And, you know, you don't want your editor involved in these things because of that. When you talk about um, the registration of the Globe and Mail, about a year of this activity, as far as we're able to tell, where Walmsley were told, and I should say, you know, you say if your reporting is correct, our reporting is absolutely correct in that Gerald Butts says that David Walmsley brought these things up with him at, at an editorial meeting. That happened in a period of time when the Globe was not registered at all, not not themselves, not through a third-party lobbyist. So there's all these engagements, multiple engagements, we're told. And then at the end of this, before they actually go through with the formal application for $12 million in funding, they do register, but they use a 
a consultant lobbyist, which is like something that happens all the time. But what that allows you to do is you put the consultant lobbyist name in the lobbying registry. And then Philip Crawley comes, we're told, to the actual meeting. But his name and the names of other Globe and Mail staffers are not part of the public records. And I want to be clear. We are not claiming in our story that the Globe and Mail was in violation of the Lobbying Act because the rules around who has to register are so fuzzy and there's so many loopholes that I think that they could probably make a pretty good uh, argument that they were playing within the rules of that, which is also what's reflected in their statement. You know, we, we worked through the appropriate channels. I think the question is more, and I'm curious if you agree, if uh, this was appropriate within journalism, not within, you know, what standard right, right. Are, are we talking about? Like the standard of, of like, did they break the law or within journalistic ethics and journalistic practice? Like you say, Paul, if they had to disclose in the article in an SNC Lavalin, you know, the prime minister's office, the Trudeau government, who recently we must disclose did not give us the twelve million dollars we asked for, are guilty of the following things. You would read those stories very differently. Let me make a distinction clear, which which I think you probably would share, which is that your article deals with the appropriateness of somebody on the editorial side of the Globe and Mail the head of the editorial side of the Globe and Mail, engaging in lobbying the government around things that would benefit the Globe and Mail as, the, as a company. And I think the implication of what, what I'm saying or we're saying is that all of that stuff should be over at the side of the publisher and should be conducted by the business side of the Globe and Mail and not the editorial side. That having been said, there's still a problem about the business side and the way they engage with government, right? And to be sort of engaging behind the scenes and not going to the particular department. Like, believe me, Jesse, if you are trying to get money out of the Department of Industry or the Department of Heritage, you probably or I would not be going to the PMO first. We would just go to the Heritage Department or the Industry Department. And it makes a difference potentially when your request comes from Gerald Butt in the PMO says, you know, I got this request. It makes a difference than you or me walking in off the street and making the request. So what I want to say about the editorial side does not mean to say that I think that the business side was all conducted in an appropriate way for a publishing company, a newspaper company. But I think you're absolutely correct. It's so clear on the editorial side yeah, that this is not the role of an editor who's making decisions over coverage. And when I look at that statement from Philip Crawley's office. First of all, the Globe and Mail is proud to take a leadership role in advocating for the importance of media in Canada. Well, yeah, but the implication there is that lobbying for particular changes or particular grants that are particular to your company is the same as advocating for the importance of media in in Canada. It's not, right? And it's also suggesting that they're, you know, by implication that they're proud that their editor takes that role. But there's a big distinction between saying the whole industry needs needs help or leadership or government involvement and saying our particular company wants a grant of this size or a meeting for a particular change in the law that's going to benefit us in particular. Secondly, he says, we're open about our ideas regarding the current and future challenges of the industry. I don't think that most of us were aware that they were looking for for the grant, for sure, until 
you know, you published this morning. I certainly wasn't aware. Mm-hmm. And as you say, I think at the end, I think the integrity of our editorial coverage speaks for itself. I think that that is using the shield of their actual editorial coverage to say, look, you, you can't look at our coverage and say we've been excessively pro-Trudeau or pro-liberal. But as you say, that it's not only the fact of conflict of interest, it's not whether you act on a conflict of interest, it's whether the conflict of interest is known and whether people like you and me who comment on the media can look at the situation and assess whether there's a conflict of interest. There's a difference between being in a conflict of interest and acting on it. And they're saying, well, we didn't act on it, so there was no conflict of interest. That's not a principle when you think about conflict of interest. No, perception of conflict of interest is tantamount to conflict of interest. So, you know, standards like conflict of interest standards and journalistic standards only sort of exist if everybody agrees that they exist. So you as a journalism professor and as a journalist uh, can can say this is clearly a conflict of interest that, that goes against industry standards. I as a journalist can suggest the same. If they say, well, let's just not accept any culpability of this and hope that this goes away, it seems like the early indication is that's their strategy. How big a problem for David Walmsley is this revelation how big a problem for the Globe and Mail and its credibility? Like, I, you know, one thing, we get really excited about stories like this that tell us about the inner workings of power and power's relationship to the media. And, you know, right. we get very excited. We never have any idea until we hit publish whether or not the public's going to care and whether or not it's going to have impact. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I think that it undermines Walmsley's reputation as a leading figure in Canadian journalism, if not a leading figure in Canadian publishing. You know, ultimately at the Globe and Mail, editors serve Philip Crawley, basically. And and Crawley has, in all the time that I, I was at the Globe in the early 2000s and before then, you know, in, the, in his 20-some years as publisher, he's decided when editors come and go and who the editors are and so on. The implication of the message from Crawley's office was that he was acting... That is to say, Wamsley was acting on either Crawley's direction or certainly on behalf of a strategy or direction of the of the corporate side. So will Wamsley be in trouble with Crawley about this? I mean, only if he was freelancing, probably. The Globe has a history of not handling journalistic issues in a very rigorous way. You know, just going back to, say, the Peggy Wente controversy and the plagiarism and so on, where they seem not to take um, the journalistic issues very seriously and they, you know, acted like it was a slap on the wrist. And they so there's kind of a history at the Globe of not acting on these things with great rigor. I think that the journalistic integrity of the Globe and Mail lives in the individual reporters. As someone who worked at the Globe and Mail, I think there is a strong culture among the reporters of rigor and dedication to traditional norms about whether it's conflict of interest or it's about partisanship and these kinds of things and political context subjecting politicians to accountability without fear or favor or partisanship. I think all of those things live very richly and robustly in the Ottawa Bureau and more generally in the repertorial core of the Globe and Mail. So I don't want to suggest that my previous remark to sound like I'm kind of casting doubt on on those qualities among the journalists at the Globe and Mail. But I think that management in the last decade or so 
when confronted with journalistic issues, have tended to look at them more as business issues. And I think if you go back to the issue with Margaret Wente, well, she was a popular columnist. So even though she had been caught doing something that outrages the, the unwritten code of journalism, and to some extent, the written codes of journalism about plagiarism and borrowing and without attribution and so on, you know, the Globe didn't really seem to treat it like that big a deal, because presumably because she was attracting eyeballs. And so it was like, in the end, a business decision. And so I think when the two really harshly clash, the business side and the journalistic and enforcing the journalistic ethics, there's a tendency to go on the business side. And the Globe has a bit of a history of that. That history extends beyond Margaret Wente. Right. It can kind of work the other way. Sometimes they won't change their behavior or come down hard because journalistic ethics have been transgressed. Sometimes they will come down hard because they're getting pressure that might affect their business interests. I think that you make a great point in bringing up the integrity of the Globe's journalists. And I think that, that really they're in a way the victims of this behavior. It's it's their work that gets called into question when this kind of stuff is happening. Absolutely. I You know, people won't speak on the record, but my guess is that there will be a lot of us in the Parliamentary Bureau of the Globe and Mail this morning when people look at this, and it's embarrassing. Like, why would you, if you were Bob Fife or Marika Walsh or the other, like, terrific reporters there, why would you want this burden on your journalism. You bring up the New York Times Code of Conduct. The Globe and Mail has an editorial code of conduct, which which states that the Globe and Mail connection must not be exploited. That's in a right. section on lobbying. Right. And it also says that staffers, if there's a circumstance where staffers is making some sort of submission or solicitation of government agencies in their life outside of the Globe, it can't be to a part of government that they routinely take part in coverage of. Right. Right? So I don't know how they get away from their own rules on this. Right, right. As I said, Wamsley actually chaired a, a leaders debate in 2015. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> they cannot take refuge behind the idea that, well, you know, you don't really understand the role of the editor at the Globe and Mail, that he's really not, you know, like it's, it's not that kind of journalistic role. He assumed that journalistic role in a very prominent way in 2015. He was the one who led the questioning of the leaders of the parties in an election debate. You cannot get more editorial, more journalistic than that. The problem is, like, what is Wamsley? Is he fish or fowl? If his job is to promote the business interest, to get grants, to get meetings, that kind of thing, then the Globe and Mail really should be explicit about that. And then they should take them out of the editorial meetings and deciding on editorials and deciding on assignments of stories and and what goes on the front page, right? Like the two just don't go together. At least it's the way we traditionally understood the way journalistic organizations should work. And that traditional understanding of the way journalistic organizations should work is actually key to the Globe's business value, right? Like if we start believing, if people start believing over time that the globe is just is just promoting its own business interests and it's not actually ultimately responsible to you and me as readers, if we get the impression that it's not in the public service, but it's in its own service, that its journalism is not in the public service, then that's going to undermine the, the brand and the business case. So ultimately, I think that the when you look at the New York Times and their ethical guidelines and so on, 
you know, part of what they're doing is that kind of high-mindedness is part of their brand. Like part of the reason we go to the New York Times is that we think they are an ethical institution and that they have ethical guidelines and they enforce them, right? And having an editor running around not knowing whether he's a, you know, the top reporter or the deputy publisher is a problem. Uh, Paul, all of this is going to come back to haunt me because, of course, I'm the publisher of Canada Land and I'm a senior editorial person here. Right. You know, no, no. It's, yeah. it, listen, it, it, I think that the ideal situation is eventually we hire somebody, you know, you, you separate those roles. I'm forever spinning plates to figure out, OK, if I did that, do I need to tell like disclose? And the only thing I can kind of arrive at because it gets right, right. so tangled is disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. You know, there's only so much right, trouble right. you can get into if you tell everybody what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, part part of the reason I've been saying you know, with traditional media and big media and so on, is because, you know, of course, when George Brown had the Globe in the 19th century, he was the editor, publisher, and the newspaper reflected his opinions. But this idea that the editorial uh, side of a newspaper should be separate from the publishing side grew up as these large media organizations became so important newspapers and then ultimately broadcasters in the 20th century. And this is one of the devices we collectively in the industry and in the society came up with to try to stick handle those difficult issues. Now, it's not the only way of addressing these things. And this morning, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking a little bit about, obviously, you have, like we hope, that new media organizations that emerge in the context of the net, I mean, some of them, many of them, most of them will start up as mom and pop operations. And it's it's always been true with local newspapers, local weeklies in small towns that the publisher and the editor were often the same person or people switched hats and maybe even the advertising department, right? So, like, I, I understand that this is not something that Moses got on the tablets, right? This is an industry practice. But the Globe and Mail benefits from the aura that comes from those traditions of major media in North America, of the distinction between the editorial and the business side. The Globe and Mail, its reputation base is, is based in part, and it's financial viability is based in part on people believing that it it has a certain kind of journalistic integrity and that is derived from the tradition of which it is a part and i didn't know that david wamsley was involved with this kind of thing it surprises me does it shock me as you say things go on behind closed doors in this country as it does in other countries but you know Gerald Butt's response to emails may be self-serving in part too but he kind of makes it sound as if he took this request by like his thumb and his index finger and held it delicately and passed it over to the department because there's kind of an implication in the way he answers your question was that this is an awkward situation for him, mm -hmm. right? The editor of the Globe and Mail is coming to him and saying, like, how about giving us a hand with getting this grant? And he's going, whoa, like, if somebody finds out that the Globe got a grant from our government after the editor kind of hit me up in the course of an editorial discussion... He's thinking, well, this is going to be a political problem down yeah. the road, right? So it's almost like he is concerned about, boy, if, if there's ever a spotlight put on this. Now, 
as I say, he's he's giving his version. It's uncontested at this point because um, the Globe has chosen not to respond to it. But Butts's response suggests that he was aware in real time or certainly in reflection that this was an awkward encounter. Which I think tells you something about why he gave us a statement. I mean, you think he'd be quick to say, I wanted this off of my desk and that's what I did. Right. That's the way he portrays it is just that he wants to be able to say to Wamsley and Crawley, I did my traffic cop thing and I directed it and talked to them. Like, that's what he makes it sound like. Yeah, and I'll tell you about that because I'm not the one with something to hide. I mean, that's, you know, an extrapolation from it. It's it's funny. You're absolutely right. Like, these, these, these holy rules of journalism, they weren't there at the start, and they might not be there tomorrow, but they were there for, like, 100 years. Right. And they're what the Globe and Mail is built on. Like, it would be interesting if that's their defense, if their defense is, actually, this is part of our digital transformation. This is a new modern type of editor-in-chief. I, I would be very open to having a conversation with them about that new interpretation of the role of the editor-in-chief. And I would also be interested to get back to, the if they do contest what Gerald Butts said, that editorial meeting was used for these business purposes, that would be an interesting conflict uh, to report on as well, if, if we get further comment from them. Paul, the last thing I want to bring up with you, aside from wrongdoing, uh, whether it happened or not and what, how much it matters, is just what this reveals about what the Globe's ambitions are for the future. We've explored this foundation model, and in fact, they actually have started. They've incorporated a nonprofit. I think that though they have thus far been unsuccessful in getting this foundation model approved, our understanding of what government has in, in store is that that might actually eventually be possible. Right. So that's half of it. The other half of it is this AI for Everyone was the name of this uh, slideshow that the Globe and Mail prepared. Mm-hmm. And they have this section that I want your thoughts on called Augmented Journalism, where they say, you know, give us this $12 million and we will build this automation, artificial intelligence for journalists, reducing the human effort and squeezing time out of the many chores that journalists must undertake to get the story out and get the news out to the public. And specifically, what are these chores that they want to automate and have robots do instead of humans? They specifically mention tedious research and fact-checking. Right. You could actually define the role of a reporter as a researcher and fact-checker. Right. It's it's interesting for me. I, and tedious to, researcher. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> and, and of course, you know, the media bailout, which this is, you know, the Globe was not lobbying for directly here, right. that is tied to jobs. You know, like the, the news organizations only get money for each employee that they employ, whereas this foundation thing is money for the globe or tax breaks for the globe, irrespective of whether they lay people off. And here they're explicitly talking about automating tasks, you know, kind of integral tasks like fact-checking and tedious research. So you, you, you could kind of imagine a scenario here where like the richest family in Canada is getting a tax break, the globe is getting a check, and they're using that check to build some sort of process that lets them fire journalists in some sort of sci-fi future where this is even possible. What do you make of this this idea of a robot doing fact-checking and tedious research? So there already is a little bit of AI being used, I believe, by Associated Press. They refer to that in their blurb there. And an example of it is, say, a baseball game where you have a basically a robot that takes the box score and converts it into a little story that says, you know, Brown hit a homer in the fourth inning that, you know, was the game winner or whatever. And so you have a little, a short story that will look like natural language, look like somebody actually wrote it, but it's actually an algorithm taking 
formulaic information and turning it into something that is more or less readable. And I think that that some business organizations have moved into doing, you know, annual reports, financial reports in similar ways. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's not a huge thing yet. It's kind of at the margins. So there's certainly some tasks that increasingly can be done that are routine. But, you know, the goal is not like there's a suggestion. The goal is to free up time for you and me to do richer stuff. That's not necessarily the case. It it could be just freeing up time so you and I could be laid off, right? So, I mean, I think there may be a role for some of this kind of thing in journalism and it's likely to grow larger as artificial intelligence plays a bigger role in this as other fields. I, it's a little mysterious to me, as you point out, like fact-checking, like how you would automate fact-checking. I guess there would be certain routine sort of mathematical things that you could do on, say, annual reports or something. I don't, Or there could be things that, especially in business reporting, that connected different databases or something. I, like it's, it's a little mysterious to me where they're headed. But I think that the where they seem to be headed, as you surmise, is not towards getting subsidies for more journalists, but towards finding ways to replace journalists and to have fewer journalists and to convey information in ways that are less kind of human intensive. And that's obviously a problem for people trying to make a living in journalism. Paul Adams, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. Hey, quick update. Shortly after I spoke to Paul Adams, Justin Trudeau sent letters to his ministers telling them what to do. And it looks like the Globe and Mail's lobbying efforts paid off after all. The Ministry of Heritage has been asked by Justin Trudeau to, quote, develop business models that facilitate private giving and philanthropic support for professional journalism and local news. And that is being taken as an indication that the tax laws are going to change. We will see. Something called the Globe Foundation has been incorporated as a nonprofit. Philip Crawley's name is on that paperwork. We do not know yet if they have applied for charitable status or if they're going to wait for the laws to change first, but we will keep you posted. That is Canada Land for this week. You know what? The only thing I'm going to tell you to do is please sign up for our newsletter. You know, we put out more and more stuff all the time, and it's really hard to listen to every podcast we put out and read every news story. But we have this wonderful newsletter that our own David Crosby puts out. It is witty. It's well-written. It tells you about our work, but it also tells you about what's happening outside of Canada Land. And you can go to canadalandshow.com to sign up for this terrific newsletter. This episode is produced by Jordan Cornish. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, if you want to get ad-free versions of this show, or if you want to give somebody else ad-free versions of this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hope you do. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.